Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Michael F. Shine, founder and president of Microframe Media and the author of The Hype Handbook, his new book. Me and Michael have known each other for a while, and it's exciting to have a conversation with him, but it's especially exciting to have this conversation in light of the release of The Hype Handbook. So thank you so much for being on The Deep Dive. It is so great to see you, Phil. It's been a little while. It has been a little while, which is, I guess, not completely uncommon given a couple of things. One is the obviously COVID-19 pandemic that has been a part of our 2020. When people listen to this episode, it will actually be 2021. So happy new year, everybody. And um, happy new year. And hopefully we're getting further and further away from pandemic. And then the second piece I think that's really important is as we're both living in New York, the New York area, you know, New York social scene is one where you can have really good relationships with folks and still only see them in normal times, maybe once or twice a year. (laughs) You know, that's not uncommon to the New York experience. Well, we would often have dinner together. I mean, we met at a conference and then kind of hit it off. And then I would sometimes throw these dinners together and you would always show up and we'd often end up sitting next to each other, as I remember. And maybe that was because I really wanted to catch up and we always had some cool things to say to each other. Absolutely. And I think those dinners is, that's going to actually come up in conversation. I made a note to kind of talk about, there's a certain part of your book where I think the dinners are very germane to the overall thesis. And, you know, before we get into the high pan book and start to you know, go through it a little bit more. What really struck me is there's a lot of very personal, like kind of introspective things that you mentioned to kind of kick off why you decided to write the book. And, you know, I want to start our conversation in that same place and give you an opportunity to share a little bit about what was really driving your thinking and your motivation to sit down and write this particular book, The Hype Handbook? Well, first of all, thank you for noticing that about the book, because while technically it's a business book, and I would think very useful for business people, you know, I was a writer first, and I still consider myself a writer at heart. I love running my business. However, I didn't want to just write a business book that would serve as a business card to help me get clients, as I do see a lot of people do. I got pretty obsessed with the concept and wanted to sort of talk about myself in the middle of it and talk about how the story of my life sort of impacted the concepts in the book. So I'm glad you picked that up. So I appreciate that. In regards to why I wrote the book, you know, I guess it goes back to a couple of things I was seeing. I mean, one was that I started a marketing agency, not because I ever wanted to be in business, but because I left a corporate job to become a freelance business writer, because that's where the opportunity was if I wanted to become a writer. And 
I knew I was a good writer, you know, at the risk of sounding kind of braggadocious, but there's a lot of things I'm really bad at. That's something that I've always, you know, had some talent in. And people have said that for a long time about me. So I thought because of that, I would just get clients and they would recommend other people and it would be great. And I'd make plenty of money and enough to live on. And that really didn't happen. I earned through my savings relatively quickly. I was in bad shape. And I read every marketing and sales book there was, and it did nothing for me whatsoever. And what I realized was that marketing, the way it was being described as you know, sales funnels and whatever else they were talking about out there, those were all tools. But there were these more fundamental concepts of mass psychology that I was actually pretty good at at one point in my life. I used to play in bands and things. And even though we never became rock stars, we used to pack clubs. We used to get ourselves in the press. And we did that by raising mischief, you know, hyping things up. And in hip hop, there's even a member of the group called the Hype Man, which I always thought was cool. They're kind of half rapper, half marketer, right? And I always thought that was a cool concept, but somehow that was just verboten in the business world. You know, you had to do these kind of formal things. And I challenged that in my own life. And I started to hype myself up rather than market myself. And it worked. I started to make sales. I started to get a lot of attention. And then people wanted that form of marketing eventually more than even the writing. So I started an agency. And I guess it just... I see so many people with good ideas in the line of work I'm in, running a marketing agency where people come to me and ask me to market their stuff. People with ideas that really can make the world a better place, and they're so resistant to doing anything unorthodox to drum up attention about themselves. And then I see a lot of people selling garbage who come to it much more naturally. And it isn't so much that they're selling garbage that makes them successful. They're successful in spite of the garbage that they're selling. They're just so good at drumming up excitement. And I just wanted to put a tool in the hands of people really making the world a better place because the bad guys, quote unquote, already get it. So that became kind of a driving motivation for me to write the book. It's interesting that in that tight statement, there was a lot that was, I think, really put on the table that made me kind of scribble some new notes, which often happens. And, you know, one of them is, and I jotted down this idea even prior to this conversation about this notion of being good. And what I mean by being good is having a valuable set of skills and expertise versus being good at selling. Right. Which is what I would think of as kind of the traditional, quote unquote, marketing or what you're defining as hype, that there's a clear differentiation between those who, you know, really have the goods for lack of a better way of putting it. They're thoughtful, they're prescient, they can do the thing versus those who are just really good at packaging the notion that they can do the thing. And I want to give you an opportunity to kind of pull that apart because I think somewhere in that distinction could be why maybe people are resistant or resistant to the idea of selling themselves or marketing themselves. Yeah, there's a lot in what you're saying. There's a lot of layers to what you're saying. So I think the first thing to discuss is that while sales, marketing, and this thing that I'm calling hype, which I've co-opted that word, it's my own definition, but I think while they're all similar, there are differences between the three. So selling is, you know, 
that transactional piece, getting someone to open their wallet, right? And it's, you know, laying out the way you're going to solve their problems, you know, working through a process. It's often one-on-one, although it can be on a mass scale. And it's getting the transaction to happen. Marketing is defined in all different ways. I've heard all kinds of definitions. I mean, Ryan Holiday, who's a great marketer and a great hype man, actually, always says that what marketing is, is any activity that gets you to keep or get or keep customers, right? But a lot of times marketing is like the tactics. It's the, you know, we'll set up this and this email sequence to get people to finally say yes, right? I define hype, while it includes all of those things, as any activities that get a large number of people extremely emotional so that they take an um, action on your behalf. And why I make that distinction is that we see hype with religions. We see hype with rock stars. You know, David Bowie was a hype artist. He would get people irrationally, like, transcendent about his art. Donald Trump is a hype artist, you know? Martin Luther King was a hype artist, although people don't like to think of him that way, but he got people extremely emotional in order to get them to do what he thought was necessary for them to do. So I think that a lot of people think who do good stuff, who do the great work that you mentioned, that they shouldn't have to, certainly shouldn't have to hype things up and they shouldn't even have to sell. That their stuff, it almost debases them to have to spend time and energy packaging their stuff because it's so good that the world should just recognize it. I also think because so many of the people that take to what I'm calling hype naturally are the outliers in society, are the propaganda artists and the cult leaders and the con artists, not all of them, but so many, because of that association, respectable characters really reject that stuff. But if they could pull back a little and say, you know what, human beings don't really understand the reality of things. Our brains aren't designed to interpret reality. They're designed to keep us alive and get us to spread our genes, then they might realize how important it is if they really want to get an audience for their stuff to appeal to mass psychology in some of the ways I'm describing. And I think that was one of the things as I read the book, this notion of moving away from the personality and thinking about these concepts in a way that is more broad, you know, and for example, I feel the process that you described working in the way you wrote the book, right? In the sense that one of the things you cite that it's very important to have a position, right? And to determine who is out there that could have a different opinion or different way of thinking about things. And then as much as as is your natural inclination, sort of align yourself against that person, right? you know, or those ideas. And, you know, to hear my instinctive reaction to hear Donald Trump and Martin Luther King mentioned in any connection to one another is to be repulsed by that notion, right? A lot of people say that to me. You know, and uh, yeah, <laughs> but I feel like that is also part of what pulls you in to try to better understand the central concepts of the book. So I have to imagine that that was done with some intention. It was. I mean, I am a bit of a mischief maker by nature. However, 
I'm not BSing you. So this is what I mean. Let me make the distinction. I am not saying that the content of what Donald Trump and Martin Luther King do are anywhere similar. You know, it's funny. I don't know how political I should get on a show because some shows I really should keep the politics out of it. You know what I mean? I'm assuming based on your work, that is not one of these shows. Yeah, this is not one of those shows. I mean, to me, my basic bucket is that politics is the way in which we've chosen to organize society. So if I'm talking about anything that has to do with culture and society and how we're moving forward, politics is going to come into that conversation. And I also think that anyone who's listened to the deep dive for over a year or have listened to my previous show, Two Dope Boys on a Podcast, or they have read anything I've ever done or said, they know my where my politics lie. So yeah. politics is not a secret. So go for it. <laughs> well, so listen, I mean, I dislike Donald Trump a whole lot. I mean, I found him to be very dangerous for the country. I think he's a bad human being, you know, and if there are Republicans listening to this, you know, God bless him. That's fine. I mean, you know, my mom is a Republican and she hates Donald Trump. So there you have it, you know. So when I say that I think Donald Trump and Martin Luther King are similar, I don't think anything about their message and anything about their morality is in the same universe. What I'm saying is that's exactly my point about this thing I'm calling hype. There are certain mass psychology principles that just work, that human beings respond to. And it has nothing to do with the content of the message. So I'll give you an example. You know, as much as we loved Martin Luther King, he didn't encourage his followers or his movement, whatever term you want to use, to get sprayed down by water hoses and beaten with batons just because that was, you know, the right thing to do and it was nonviolent. He did it in front of cameras, always. He always made sure that the press was there because he knew that by having that happen, people would see that and it would create a story where before there were only concepts. But to give you an even more stark example, and Donald Trump is a hype artist about very ridiculous, or I don't want to say ridiculous, messages that I find to be awful. I'll give you an example. So Warren Buffett, you know, if you're in the business world, I would say is one of the more admired people in finance. Even people who don't like finance people tend to respect him because of the concreteness of what he does and he doesn't go after trends and, you know, however, and these sorts of things. He has a framed photograph or not photograph. He has a framed diploma from the Dale Carnegie Institute, which is the guy who wrote How to Win Friends and Influence People. And one of the topics there is let the other fellow feel like the idea is his. So that's a subset of one of the hype topics that I'm talking about, that you can't persuade people if you try to push your ideas down their throat. You have to wrap, you have to get them to make the decision on their own. But you know who else used that tactic a lot? So Charles Manson was a low-level pimp in a prison, and they were offering a Dale Carnegie Institute course, and he was the number one student in that course. And he got these middle-class kids to become murderers by using that exact same method. So the content is completely different, but the psychology was identical. So that's what I'm saying. And you know, when we're starting to get into the psychology and pull that apart a little bit, is there something that is, I don't want to say missing, but are there like deeper feelings going on that make people susceptible to hype, particularly when I think, as you said at the beginning, 
a lot of these notions are at least more popularly thought of in the hands of bad actors, right? They're people who are looking to manipulate for their own gain versus doing anything even remotely related to the greater good, right? So are those people able to, are the bad actors using this stuff, but also kind of capturing something that is deeper, that is missing, that they then come in and fill that hole? So I'm hearing two questions here. So correct me if I'm wrong. So you, you likely are hearing two questions because that's just the crazy way in which my mind works, but yeah. go for it. <laughs> well, one question I'm hearing is, are these hype artists, especially the bad actors, identifying a void in human beings that make them susceptible to this sort of psychological maneuvering or manipulation, whatever you want to call it. That's one question I'm hearing. And the other question I'm hearing is, is there just something, what makes these bad actors so good at this? And does that mean there's something wrong with it? Let's go for it. You can take them in part one and part two. Go for it. So I'm going to answer part two first. So there have been studies done on people who have a wide variety of personality disorders that are grouped under something called antisocial personality disorders. And they include psychopathy, you know, being a psychopath, sociopathy, and extreme narcissism, very extreme narcissism. And what they find when they study these people in a lab setting, when it's been done, is that when they're put under certain circumstances, emotionally stressful circumstances that would get most people's uh, nervous system extremely agitated, a normal person like you and me, their heart rate and pulse doesn't really rise very much. And so what that says to me is that it's not so much that the strategies that I'm talking about are inherently evil, because A, if they were evil, I wouldn't dedicate my life to this because I didn't leave my corporate job to become a con artist. And people who know me would know that that's the case. But also, you know, if the vast majority of people respond to certain stimuli, it's either evil or not evil. It just is, though. That's just how we react. So that's the reality. So it's just that these people with antisocial personality disorder, who many of these hype artists are, they don't let emotion get in the way. They don't get frazzled. They look at the world as a chessboard. So they're able to see the world as it really is. And as a result, they're very good at this thing that I'm calling hype, at getting other people emotional while they do exactly those steps they need to do to make that happen. So I think that if you believe that there's value in getting people excited about your ideas and whatever form that takes, what might be a better thing to do is work on yourself, engaging in practices that lets you control your emotions, not to become a psychopath, that's impossible, nor is it desirable, but lets you become a little less reactive and more proactive so you can actively make decisions on how you want to handle interpersonal relationships for good or for evil, hopefully for good. So I think that's it. I think people get the logic backwards. It's not that these tactics are horrible and that's what makes these people horrible. It's that horrible people are better wired to implement these tactics. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that it's really perceptive of you to mention the void piece, that people have a void. Because I actually have a chapter in my book, a hype strategy called Find a Void and Fill It. So I would say that getting 
people really attracted to you on a mass level, on a large scale, it's essential to identify something that they're missing, some loss that they had or some void that they feel. Fortunately for any well-meaning hype artist, that's every human being in some area of their life or at a certain point. And this has been done for good and it's been done for evil. And we can talk about examples. There are really good ones. But yeah, I think you're right on the money. And, you know, that brings me to really this sort of pulling apart of, I'm using that word a lot, the term pulling apart today. I don't know what that is. It's something, it must be, I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a pulled pork sandwich for lunch. Be, You're making me hungry. I was like, I really feel like pulled it pork. Must be I didn't know Monday. why. I don't know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. I think I'm using it because it's really beyond me being stuck on it. Maybe it's just, it's so apropos to, I think the conversation, because I think the book is, it's not long. And I say that as a compliment as someone who reads a lot of long books, but in its brevity, there is a lot of really complex ideas. And I also think that they're very, very important, particularly given the world as it stands right now and the ability, and we've seen this over and over again, for a sort of mass communication that we've never seen before at any time in history. And I think also combined with a precarious existence that has made these concepts even more essential to understand. So that's that's why I'm really trying to spend some time digging in and pulling apart yeah, seems to great. be the only, the only language that I've found to do that. No, I'm enjoying it. It's a different kind of conversation. And it's a really fun conversation because, you know, you can take these concepts on a very surface level or you can really go deep with them. And thank you for that. Because I think, for example, I'm going to use two examples in the book, but I think they're also fairly well-known public figures that are worth having a conversation about. And I'll use Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk, who for those who will not know just the popular moniker, and Simon Sinek, right? And both people that I think it's fair to say that both of us have been around and engaged with for a while, right? In our world. I mean, it's funny because when I ask my mom or someone in science, you know, like I have a friend who's a scientist, they don't know who these people are, you know, but in our world, they're celebrities, which says something about how fragmented everything is. Oh, absolutely. And I 100% agree with you. You can talk to another group of folks and they'll be like, what are you talking about? But if you're in a, what I'll call, and it is nothing official, kind of a business slash social media type of environment and marketing whatever yeah exactly everyone kind of knows these two particular characters right and characters not said with judgment even though in the case of gary v i've been very critical far more critical than you have been of him in particular more critical really oh yeah completely 100 (laughs) critical because I'm critical of him as well it's funny that you yeah and and, and that's why i wanted to use him as an example because When I read a lot of the critique of someone like him in particular, as it pertains to him being good at hype, it sets up this notion that he's one can say, yes, he's good at hype, regardless of the merit of it. But one of my particular kind of beefs or critique, whatever you want to call it, is that he's someone who has also been 
heavily resourced and privileged in order to be good at the hype. That's a hundred percent true. So that's true. For, for me, I'm like, are you good at the hype or do you just have outsourced connection to resources that other folks don't really have? And so However, I want to leave it there with, well, okay, with him. Sorry. Yeah. And then I want to talk about something different with Simon. So I have a lot of criticism of Gary Vaynerchuk. So I can't believe I'm about to maybe defend him. But yeah, he had resources. So I mean, for the people who don't know, he makes it out like he came from nothing and he was an immigrant and he had his dad's liquor shop, you know, and made it into this big business. But his dad's quote unquote liquor shop was worth a million to $3 million when he took it over. It was a liquor business. Is that what you're talking about? I mean, is that what you're referring to by privilege? Yeah, that's true. You know, however, well, first of all, a lot of the cases in the book I use are not privileged people. In fact, I would say that hype is sometimes the only tool that people on the margins have to come to the center. You know what I mean? To climb up in the world, which is why hip hop always has the hype man. I don't think that's an accident. The hype man in hip hop is not considered a negative. It's considered a positive or why a lot of rappers who now have money, but who came from a disadvantaged background, love the 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. You know what I mean? A lot of people who have my background, you know, white middle class guy like that book, but a lot of them also say that it's immoral or it shouldn't be that way, where you talk to Kanye West and he's like, it's the only book I've ever read, right? So to go back to Gary Vaynerchuk, that being said, we can't help how we're born, right? And there are a lot of kids. It's not like he inherited a $100 million company. He had some resources. At the same time, he made the thing into an empire. I know a lot of rich kids who are handed the world, and it's like shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. They can't make anything happen with it. In fact, they ruin the business, you know? So you have to give a little credit where credit's due. Also, with As much as I think his agency is completely overblown to this day, I can't, he has a marketing agency and I could be wrong about this, but I have asked everyone I know what actual marketing campaigns besides promoting Gary Vaynerchuk, the guru have been successful ad campaigns and no one can name one for me. So that's an interesting thing, but wine library and wine library TV, where he took his dad's liquor store and turned it into a digital business and then made this really funny video blog out of it was pretty great. You know, I mean, there was no getting around that. I mean, doing a wine show where he compared wine to Skittles and cinnamon toast crunch and talked like a long Island bro, you know, I give a little credit where credit's due. That was a cool product. You know what I mean? I don't like that he hides his privilege and tells everybody else that they can make it if they work hard. I think that's really disingenuous, but I don't want to be as black and white about it, maybe as I've sometimes come across or what I'm maybe hearing. So I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? I'd be curious to hear when you're listening to me talk, what are you thinking? I'm thinking by talking right now. I'm not sure how I feel. Of course. And I think that's the nature of the show, right? To have us pull apart these ideas and Kind of we're talking through it and making sense of it in the moment. And I think for me, it kind of brings me to the Simon Sinek piece, which is, and this is how I connect them, that I feel that there's a co-option of these ideas, right? Like there's a huge difference in my mind to someone or some people or some groups that are truly on the margins 
that use hype or what we used to call like guerrilla marketing or buzz marketing. Yeah, exactly. Same thing. You same, know. I mean, not same thing, but very, very yeah. similar thing. The Wu-Tang Clan putting their W at eye level everywhere in Staten yeah. Island. That's a repetition technique that's really use, you know, useful. And, yeah. and when you don't have, when you're not well-resourced, you know, by any means necessary, you know, you got to try to to figure it out. Not a question. Yeah. And what I've seen is this co-option of notions like hustling, right? Like these things come. Uh, that's a good point. Hustle was originally from the yeah, streets. It's a street that thing. Like a, a, it's a yeah. hip hop thing. Right. It's kind of a yeah. crime adjacent thing. And right. now it's become not only mainstream business concept, but the morality behind it in terms of living in a society absent social safety net, hustling is become weaponized in a way. I love this. I wish I had had this conversation with you before I wrote my book, because this is a, you're almost saying something that I only skirted over in the book and in my articles. This is really interesting. And that's why I land on Simon, right? Because you actually mentioned a video. It was an interview that he did. I can't remember where. And so I apologize for not knowing exactly where I saw it. But everyone saw it. Everyone saw it. It was one of these videos that kind of went viral. And again, viral in our world, not TikTok viral, but just kind of marketing media (laughs) viral. And despite the fact I don't have a particular problem with Simon Sinek, that particular video did bother me. Because I think we talked about it. <laughs> if if I were to go back to the archives, I think we discussed the video, me and my co-host for a former show, Two Doughboys in a Podcast. I think we discussed the video on that show because it was completely, to me, devoid of any understanding of the larger cultural and social context to which millennials, which was the point of the video, exist. And I thought that was particularly sloppy and you cited the same video and mentioned some of the same critique, right? That there's all these broad strokes about millennials or this, millennials or that, with no a proof of that being true. And most importantly to me, not understanding the larger cultural and societal sort of existence of millennials. And Gen Z, you can throw any group in, you know, so that was really my issue, this notion of like simplicity and co-option. Yeah, I mean, the guy basically says in the video with it, and again, I don't have a problem with him or really Gary Vaynerchuk either on any human level, you know, and I really admire what they've done. I do. I'd like to have a TED talk as well, right? I mean, I think it's fantastic. And I'm not saying that sarcastically. I don't bemoan anybody's success. However, To have a video where you say the reason millennials are ill-prepared and lazy and blah, 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 or whatever he said is because parents, all parents, helicopter parented them and that created some kind of dopamine neuroepinephrine release, you know, and this guy is not a scientist, but he talks like a scientist and everyone shares it on Facebook, especially baby boomers who like to think that they're the greatest thing, even though everyone called them lazy pieces of garbage when they were kids, you know, but now they're in charge and they forget that it's always the youth who's awful, that millennials are horrible. You know, meanwhile, like, I don't know, Generation X, we're now these respectable figures, right? I don't know exactly how old you are, but I'm assuming you're, are you Generation X? Firmly Generation X. And me too, right? So first of all, Generation X were the worst 
in terms of pure crime, drug use, I mean, the worst ever. And to think that millennials, millennials are, I mean, I don't think they're fun. I think they're pretty boring as a rule, but they're the best people in the world. (laughs) They're like saving the world, you know? So I'm going off on a tangent, but I guess my deeper point, I think you can really, to use another hip hop term that I'm going to co-opt, you can really flip the script, right? So we can sit here all day long and dig in to how it oughtn't be the fact that Gary Vaynerchuk and Simon Sinek co-opt and hype and hustle for their own benefit. But the fact of the matter is they're never going to stop. You know what I mean? Gary Vaynerchuk is a salesman through and through. He left Belarus. He loves capitalism the way you love your dog if you have a dog. You know what I mean? The guy's never going to stop. Simon Sinek worked at an ad agency, and that's okay. And if they want to co-opt hip-hop, why don't the people who are disadvantaged co-opt them? I mean, Jay-Z, you know, his company that's called Rockefeller. Yeah, Rockefeller Records. uh, Well, think about that. He could have sat there and complained about his marginal status, which there's value in in trying to right wrongs. But he co-opted the robber barons. He said, you can't beat them, join them. So what I would say what young entrepreneurial people who aren't advantaged should do is instead of buying Gary Vaynerchuk and Ty Lopez and Simon Sinek's courses about how to succeed, because if everyone who bought those succeeded, there'd be a lot more rich people in the world. Instead of buying those courses, study what they do, because they do what they do is often at odds with what they teach, but what they do gets them paid. That's what I would do to fight back. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said. And, you know, for all the fans of both Simon Sinek and Gary Vaynerchuk that are going to be blowing up my email, it's totally all good in the hood because everything that we've discussed, I think, is public record. And once you're a public figure, you're now open to critique. And so they put that out there. But we didn't insult them. We didn't insult their, yeah. their looks, their character. No, and, I mean, you, you know, know, it's, yeah. I still wouldn't care, right? <laughs> like, but, I, but fine, but that's yeah, not but what that's we're doing. Really it's, a, it's, a, it's a battle of ideas. Exactly. I mean, you know, let them respond to yeah. this. And I wrote an article about Simon Sinek that this came from, that is my most viewed article ever, hundreds of thousands or 150,000 or 200,000 views. People have commented on it left and right. I've gotten clients for my agency through it. Sinek has yet to respond to me. And I'm assuming that's because he knows that if he does, some ideas will come to light that doesn't bolster his official image. And, you know, I think that idea notion is is a good one to kind of lean into because we're often kind of talked about everyone who's kind of even a person who's paying just a little bit of attention to some of the cultural and social norms there's this notion that we exist in a marketplace of ideas and, you know, it's fine to debate them and kind of fight through. And this notion that in this marketplace of ideas, a very capitalist framing, that the good ideas will rise to the top. You know, we're all just having a big conversation. But I think what is relevant to highlight is that that marketplace of ideas isn't really true. It's not really a true marketplace. There's lots of really shitty, bad ideas that get to the surface and become kind of the norms. And so in keeping with thinking about, you know, hype as a handbook, as a set of tools and norms that we can adopt, how do we, as I think you've made it very clear in the book, that these notions should be empowered toward what's good, you know, what's going to 
you know, make the world a better place, empower good actors. So what are the steps and kind of mechanisms that we can use or how should we think about this handbook in order to better align these ideas with how we started at the beginning of the show, the good actors? Yeah, it's a great question because I can't be the moral arbiter, right? For the world. I'm not an, what, what do they call it? An ethics, ethician, <laughs> ethics expert, whatever. Yeah, ethicist. Ethician. <laughs> you know, I'm not that guy. But I mean, I have rules for myself, which are don't deceive people and don't hurt people. So I think that Charles Manson hurts people. That's without question. Warren Buffett, I don't think really hurts people, but there are probably people who think that he does. I would say Martin Luther King, most people would say doesn't hurt people and actually helps people. Richard Branson, I think helps people. Other people might disagree with me. So, I mean, I think there's a spectrum, but I I think that if you can honestly say to yourself that you think that you start from the place of, okay, I've got good stuff, stuff that provides another capitalist word, value, but I need to package it to get it out into the world. And the other thing I would say, if the hype that you create actually adds color to what you're doing, that's an added bonus. So what I'm attracted to are, I've always liked art. Let's forget about business for a second, but I've always liked art where it wasn't just a bunch of guys strumming their guitars on stage or a painter painting paintings and hoping that your paintings got seen because they're beautiful. I always liked art where like the hype and the art were one in the same and where the hype almost added color to the art. So like I think about, since I know we both like hip hop, I think about Public Enemy who, you know, no band, they said, don't believe the hype, but think about it. I mean, they had guys in the background in like military uniforms marching. They had Flava Flav who like was the literal hype man who had a clock around his neck. And I remember kids debating about what that clock meant. Did it mean that the white man's time is running out? No, it can't possibly mean that. Da, 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 da. You know, like all, all of this stuff. Chuck D was a radio guy before he was ever a uh, rapper. And he used to use mass media very skillfully to spread the word. And I thought all of that stuff was cool. I thought it added color to what they did. That's more interesting to me than a guy just spitting rhymes. You know what I mean? I would say Warhol is a good example of that. I don't think that his marketing, quote unquote, efforts made the art worse. Who needs to see a painting of a Campbell soup can? If he was just trying to sell that on the aesthetics of this Campbell soup can, that's meaningless. It's what it said. It's how it interacted with everything else. Banksy. So if you can add color to the world with the hype, and that can work for business. Richard Branson does that all day long. I mean, this is a happily married man. For all intents, he's one of the most happily married men in business, but he has pictures taken of himself with like a hot model on the back of him hanging off of a jet ski. What's that about? Why does he do hot air balloon rides? But that stuff's fun to watch. It doesn't make anyone's life worse. So that's where I really find hype in life enriching. Do you think in... I don't know if even be able to kind of get to all the undertones that could exist in this question. So I'm trying to set it in a place even before I ask it, before we get to the final two sessions of the show, which are off the dome and the drop. And do you think a lot of these notions and ideas, are they gender neutral or are they gender specific? Are there certain parts of hype that make it more readily accessible to men and their perspective versus that of women and their perspective? 
It's a really good question because when I was doing this research, both for personal reasons and for sales reasons, I really wanted to find a diverse audience for personal reasons because I don't think it's good. You know, you come from where you come from and you are who you are. So even the best of us have preconceptions. We look at people like ourselves more naturally. So, And I knew that wasn't the right way to approach something like this. So I wanted to make sure that I included all types of people. Also, we're in a historical moment, especially in the publishing industry, where if you have a book full of dead white males, it's not going to get published, you know, and we can talk about whether that's true or not, but it's true. So for both professional reasons and small a artistic reasons, I wanted to make sure I had all kinds of people and including men and women. And there are some women in the book, and some of them were great hype artists, far fewer women than men, you know, far fewer. It was hard to find women. There are a few. I mean, Amy Semple McPherson, who was the uh, first celebrity preacher, hype artist extraordinaire, the Fox sisters who created spiritualism. So there are some real big examples. I would say Oprah is an example, but far fewer. And I don't know why. I'd love to explore that with you. I've thought about this because I feel like I could get in trouble by throwing out pop science ideas once you start saying that men and women are different without the research. That's a troubling space to be in. But I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know, to be honest. I really don't, which is why I posed the question to the expert. But I think it's something to explore. I'm with you. Like, I wouldn't speculate without really thinking about it, right? I mean, Jordan Peterson, people like that go out there and say men are more achievement-oriented than women on average, and he gets a whole lot of flack, you know? So the last thing I would want to do is say maybe it's because men are more driven by testosterone and and want to climb the ladder at any cost, but that could be the reason, but it also could be totally wrong. I just don't know. Yeah, he's another one that yuck, but nonetheless... Uh, What I'm saying is, though, forget yuck or not yuck. What I'm saying is that to start speculating in broad strokes about why women and men are, you know, yeah, I think it, overly or less represented in certain areas is a scary space to be in. In broad strokes, <laughs> yeah. if I had to give one thought, and then we'll get into off the dome and the drop, it would be that, and I have no empirical evidence of this except my lived experience, but men are really good at bullshit and other men are really good at loving other men's bullshit. But why? Why? Why would you say that? Like what? Like, I mean, yeah. okay, You know, sure. (laughs) I don't know. But I've known some bullshitter women. Let me tell you, it's not the same kind of bullshit. But like, I, you know, maybe it's the tone and tenor. I don't know. But it's yeah, I'm going to fall on that until we've dedicated our 2021 to doing more, you know, not off tongue of cheek research on it. But (laughs) yeah, I know we're just like I like. Yeah, but it's funny. I looked really hard, and there are some great hype artist women, but there are so much fewer than men. It's really, yeah. That will be the topic of our next conversation. Yeah. So I want to get to Off the Dome, and I only have a couple of questions, but for someone who has done so much work, obviously you're someone who takes a lot of time researching things and really digging into why, why things happen, how they are. What is the worst advice? you've ever received? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I was told at one point, so I was working at a company that ran call centers. It was just, I fell into that industry. And I came into it because they were doing a startup division that was more aligned with my interests. And that folded and they shifted us into the call center industry. 
And I learned some things there, you know, but I was there eight years. And by the end, I really shouldn't have been there that long. And people close to me would tell me that I should stick it out because if I made money now and gained skill sets now, that would help me later in my career when it was time to do what I really wanted to do. And when I was edging into my 30s and realized there was no good time to step away from this world because my paycheck kept getting bigger. And the person in question who was a family member was never going to stop saying that. I think that gets that kind of advice gets people a lot of deathbed regrets and was close to getting me there. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Yeah, that's a good one. I've thought about this question a lot because I used to like comic books a lot and they all had their downsides. I'm afraid of heights, so not flying. Wouldn't want to read people's minds because they'd be thinking negatively about me. Gosh, super memory. I'd like to just remember anything I wanted to remember. Not everything about everything because sometimes it's better to forget traumatic experiences. But if I could just be hyper aware of everything and remember anything I wanted to remember, I think that would make learning so much easier. Or maybe super attention. That would be another one. I can get distractible. Actually, I'm going to replace it. I'd like hyper focus when I wanted to. Okay, that's awesome and necessary. If you could think of your favorite, and I mean favorite hype person in the sense of their efficacy, who would that hype person be? When I learned about Edward Bernays, I was blown away. Had you known about him before this book? Because so many people knew about him and I had never heard about yeah, him. Yeah, I was familiar. I guess he came to some prominence again with that documentary. Yeah, the Adam Curtis I had documentary. Not heard of. Yeah, but I had not learned about him from that. I was blown away by this guy that there was like, you know, I'm not big on conspiracy theories. And this guy was like a walking conspiracy theory. And it was all true. I mean, he was like working. He's the father of public relations. He originally called public relations propaganda. And then when World War I gave propaganda a bad name, he changed it to public relations, um, which is, says something. He is responsible for women smoking. He's responsible for Americans eating breakfast. He had a Latin American government overthrown for the United Fruit Company. And this stuff is documented and true. There's no two ways about this. So that blew my mind. And the fact that he was able to do it so effectively without anyone knowing what was going on. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. I would definitely, I think that's a great person to sort of have out in the ethos for people to learn from. And that's a perfect segue into our final segment of the show, which is the drop. And the drop is for you and I to share something or some things, plural, that our listeners should check out and engage with. And so I have a drop. I'm assuming you're ready with your drop. So do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? You can go first. Okay, perfect. My drop for this week is a book by an author named Bell Hooks. She's a very famous writer and thinker, public intellectual, for lack of a better word. And she's written a lot of books on race and gender. But she has one in particular that I reread for a conversation that I had with another guest, Adrian Marie Brown. And I read this book in anticipation of my conversation with her. And it's called All About Love by Bell Hooks. And it's a rumination on the topic of love, something that we discuss a lot, but yet don't really have as good a grasp of what it means as we think we do. And since people are going to be listening to this at the beginning of their 2021, I think it's a good book for them to start their 2021 with. So it's all about love by Bell Hooks. 
You know, it's funny. I've heard that name a lot by people I've respected, and I don't know anything about her. I'm going to have to check her stuff out. Well, so my drop, I just read a book that I found really interesting that came to me through an excerpt in some publication, maybe the Times or the Wall Street Journal. It couldn't have been the Wall Street Journal. I don't read that, but sometimes their articles pop up on Facebook or whatever. But um, it was called History Has Begun by a guy named, a Portuguese thinker and diplomat named Bruno Macias. I'm probably pronouncing the last name wrong. But he had a really fascinating thesis that I had never really considered. So he basically says, and it it was a dense book, but for some reason I plowed through it. He basically says that everyone's been talking in the last couple of years about how the United States as a civilization is on its deathbed and it's decaying. He said, but most great civilizations, great meaning very powerful, last a lot longer than 200 years. And he really doesn't believe that we are at the end of anything. And in fact, we might be entering a new era of power and dominance, but that what's changing is that because we're so powerful, we're creating a new type of civilization. So we're not just like what people used to say is we're just the evolution of Europe, like the evolution of enlightenment ideals in Europe. And the idea is that most great civilizations create their own thing. They evolve and create their own thing. And his thesis is that the United States has created a civilization where fantasy and unreality are the basis of civilization. And that's not necessarily a bad thing or a good thing. It's just what it is. I mean, we're the only country on earth that created places like Las Vegas and Dis- and Orlando, Florida, you know, around Disney World and, you know, Silicon Valley, virtual reality, like that Trump isn't even a demagogue. He's a fantasist. You know what I mean? I mean, he's literally a game show host running a country. And that isn't necessarily a horrible thing. It's just a new paradigm that no one has ever thought of, that we're like the virtual reality civilization. And it was just a complicated idea, but really fascinating. And I sort of bought some of it. And that what we're going through now is sort of a crisis that might be the chrysalis for the new blossoming of this thing that we're creating that's entirely original. Oh, that's awesome. I haven't been, I'm not familiar with the book, but hearing what you've described of it has made me very intrigued to kind of check it out, which I guess makes it a really good drop because that's the purpose of the drop, to inspire listeners and even myself to check out something that that is going to be relevant and important. And this definitely sounds like one of those things, you know. Michael, I want to thank you so much. I want to say, let me know what you think when you read it, because this is like a dense book, one of these weird books I like, and I can't get anyone... I mean, I've, people haven't read it when I've recommended it. And you're the kind of guy who I know I would have oh, like yeah, an I'll amazing conversation about this I'll thing. definitely yeah. check it out. I'll definitely check it out. And once I do read it, I will definitely let you know. So I want to thank you so much for joining me on The Deep Dive. This has been a great conversation. I'm really excited for folks to listen to it and hear it in our new year, 2021. I had a huge amount of fun. This was a great one. It's been a pleasure having Michael F. Shine join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts or our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter at FarflungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.